HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by The Green Grape and the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meet and Three is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staff when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit. And hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. You're listening to In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, back to chat about all things wine and spirits. Returning listeners know that we've been on a hiatus for a bit while I've been focused on opening up my restaurant Fausto in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I'm happy to say I'm back to recording episodes on a regular basis. I really do love doing this show and I'm excited to be back in the studio here at Heritage. For our first episode of this new season, I really wanted to dig into a subject that's been on my mind a lot lately, natural wine. Though wine has been made without chemical additives for thousands of years, we're only more recently labeling wine as natural. I know that many of our listeners are aware of this growing trend here in the U.S., but there's a lot of confusion about the subject. In fact, when I opened my restaurant, Del Anima, in 2007, I used to throw the term natural wine around for pretty much anything grown organically or biodynamically. But now I find myself seldom using the word when describing the wines I love. I actually recently spoke with Ariane Okipinti, who expressed the same sentiment. The definition has changed quite a bit over the last decade, and now natural is a loaded term, complete with trend, value judgment, and a lot of confusion. For just a little bit of background, the use of chemicals in viticulture really accelerated after World War II, when there's a combination of advances in fertilizer production from bomb making, new technology, and a lack of strong young men to work the fields. Wines could be made then with few people in the field, fewer man hours, and can be made to be more stable to be shipped around the world. The natural wine movement started as a reaction to all of this, and there's a movement against the use of agrochemicals and sulfur uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. But even more recently, really in like the last 10 years, a group of producers has been making wine on the margins that's been labeled as natural wine. A lot of these wines are made in experimental ways and don't resemble the wines of the past. They embrace the fact that they're made without rules, but are also fitting into a new trendiness. These wines have gained popularity in cool places from Brooklyn to Copenhagen. Uh, in fact, I was even speaking with a, a producer in Italy recently who said, hey, when one of our wines gets weird and funky, we just send it to Copenhagen. Uh, but despite the rising popularity, what makes a wine natural is difficult to define. 
It's a really tricky thing to make a delicious wine without any of the processes used to refine a wine. And if the concept of what makes wine natural doesn't allow for any of them, then we end up with a lot of wines that taste kind of faulty. And a wine that has clear flaws, whether, and this is my opinion, whether it's too much VA, Brett, or bacterial mousiness, how is that wine any better than industrially made wines that also all taste very similar? And that's why I really want to talk today uh, with our, our really special guest, John Bonet. John is the senior contributing editor at Punch. I always love reading John's work and have been particularly struck by his perspective on the natural wine movement. Um, John has also uh, written quite a few books. Uh, he's, he, he wrote The uh, New California, The New Wine Rules, and has an upcoming book on French wine. Um, so he's really an expert on these topics. Uh, John, welcome to the studio. It's great to have you here today. Joe, great to be back. Uh, I should say, yeah, welcome back to the studio. Um, if, you, if you'll allow me, I realize this is like a longer intro than I normally do, but I have a, a quote from you from a recent article that you did uh, that Megan Krigbaum uh, wrote. It was sort of a, a round table that included uh, Alice Firing and Lou Amador and Chris Brockway. And I thought you had so many great nuggets. This is when you lose the last of your listeners. The last, and they're all <laughs> falling asleep. If I could hear no, no. both of them. Uh, but you, I think... Definitely you, don't quote me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're here, so it's going to be lots of good quotes from today's show. Um, but this last one, and then I want to ask you all sorts of things. I'll let you do all the rest of the talking. I'll shut up for the rest of the episode. But you wrote, Natural wine as it, it exists today... Um, or I guess you were quoted as saying, natural wine as it exists today can't be built up to scale. It's intended to be on the fringe, at least if you define it by its originalist roots as a slightly Marxist notion touted in Paris wine bars. What's more likely is that the best ideas of natural wine, farm virtuously, don't fuck around in the cellar, will find ever more acceptance among good winemakers. This sulfur debate will finally taper off and we'll end up back where we were a decade ago, where the focus is on the virtues of working transparently. Then we can stop at this binary natural or not parlor game everyone wants to play in right now. We can get rid of terms of fluff terms like real wine and deal with the relative virtues of wine in specific. Uh, and with that, <laughs> I feel like they're, Rachel, coming, they're coming with pitchforks. I feel like Rachel Maddow right now. Like, here's all the history. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have a guest, too. Um, no, now with all of that background, uh, it, I don't feel any closer to understanding what natural wine is. Uh, but hopefully by the end of the show, uh, we can. I really love the work that you've been doing. You've been you've been writing about it. Um so is there, I mean, I, I realize I glossed over a lot of stuff, but is there anything and sort of uh, important uh, milestones that in the, in that history that that are important for our listeners to know about? Yeah, well, um, and and in terms of of feeling confusion, I mean, when when you have something that's an undefinable and is kind of an opt in process, uh, it it is hard to understand what the definition is because you know it depends which uh, which door you knock on. You know, so so what was interesting was you you were uh, you were talking about uh, Delanima, uh, and I forget when did Anfora open. Anfora opened in two thousand ten. Okay, so about eight years ago, and so so the 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 ten year history, which which is what I was getting at in in that quote, is really really fascinating because you go back to that period, uh, and I think back about what the lists were like then. Uh, at Del Anima and then at Anfora, which literally, like, you think about the the symbol of coolness now in wine, uh, and you you literally use that for the name of your wine bar um, back in the day. Uh, and uh, when I think about what 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 you were advancing then, and I think about what the progression is now, it's interesting because uh, I've actually gone back and looked at what I was writing in like oh eight nine ten, and even then I was I mean there was there was all of this talk about natural wine San Francisco, which is uh, where I was at the San Francisco Chronicle at that point, was having its its first natural wine week, and uh, we did uh, Corey Cartwright, who's gone on to co-found uh, Selection Massal, an importer, uh, was doing this blog when we had blog of 31 days of natural wine and uh, me and my friend Wolfgang did a did a series on it of uh, natural wine and natural pizza where we I 
this is for real. We we literally fermented two batches of pizza dough in two different parts of San Francisco to see if we could like derive pizza terroir, and then we decided we and then we'd like cook the pizza and had it with natural wine or what what was defined as natural wine then and like natural then incorporated a lot more classic wine, which could have been Bartolo Mascarello. I think we opened some like you know some uh, some of well it would have been Marisa Teresa Maria Teresa's Dolcetto at that point. Uh, Luke Massey from Switzerland, lots of stuff from Beaujolais, you know, things that were, um, things that were at the time being called natural, which I think was much more about, um, the, the quality of farming and sort of minimal intervention, uh, in the cellar. Uh, I don't think people were talking a ton about sulfur aside from sort of not using that much. And now I roll forward and it's, I mean, funky to me, as, as I said to someone not too long ago when they were like, you know, stop calling, stop calling natural wine funky. I'm like, I think you're disrespecting George Clinton a little bit here because there's nothing wrong with funk. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's this willful, like the wines have to be totally different. They all have to be out of Appalachian. They have to be so sort of, you know, weird and made in a completely different way. And I mean, sulfur is a piece of that, but it's just, um, you know, it's, it's interesting now because this is a term that's been with us for a while. And it's a term that I think, I mean, I hate to think of either of us as, as old, but like, you know, the oldsters back from 10 years ago, we're talking about these wines in a somewhat different context. And someone like Ariana Ocupinti, who's mid-30s now, and it sounds like is already sort of having existential issues. Like, I mean, she was like, she was young then, but she was at that time kind of an icon for for this this idea. Uh, and now someone like her, someone like Elisabetta Foradori, you know, they're they're sort of like, they're they're like, I don't want to say they're out of fashion, but they're, they're like old school. Uh, and... Um, and so, uh, you know, the, um, it's, it's this moment that we're hitting now, I think has so much more to do with fashion and so much more to do with, with aesthetics and choice. And, um, and I think, you know, a, a repudiation of what came before than it does with a lot of the, the core ideas that are there for natural wine, which, you know, as, as I, you know, as was in that quote, like, you know, these are all really important things. It's a question of whether you're doing them because you believe in the broader culture of wine or because you just want the, you know, the prior history of wine to go fuck itself. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And, you know, you're talking about my, my wine bar, Anfora. When I opened Anfora, I was very inspired by what uh, Jasko Grovner had done in, in Friuli, uh, he was making orange wines uh, aged in conc- aged in amphora uh, buried clay buried in the ground. And I thought that was just like a really brave thing to do because no one else was doing it at that time. And and we were talking about Kvevery and you know all all yeah. I mean it was Grovner and Radikon were were. We're the North Star. Right. But now it's so trendy. Now it's like every, you know, there's so many producers who are um, jumping on the bandwagon in a way. Uh, and I still love, I love Grovner wine. I'm happy to drink it. And I, I feel like it, it takes in order to make, for someone to make a wine in that style, you have to be a great winemaker and sort of do it for, uh, you know, with, with that, with that, that background of an understanding of, of wine, of high quality winemaking. And he was one of the best white winemakers in Italy before that. Um, and if you go back and you taste his much more conventional, much oakier uh, wines from eighties into the early nineties. Yeah. It's, you see the progression, you see how he got to the idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this way, way better than I do. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's now standard. If I walk into a cellar in France, there is at least, I would say, a 50% chance that I'm going to find an amphora in there somewhere, you know, because they want it, because they're experimenting, whatever it is. But it's like, this is, I, I, I mean, I don't imagine Grovner thought this is where things were going to go, or mm-hmm. that even the Georgians thought that this is where things were going to go. But it's now, uh, it's become sort of, you know, it's become like, the, the must-have tool. Yeah, and to me, at that time, it was, like, brave and courageous. And now it's a little bit of an eye roll. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah I see why you're doing it. Uh, uh, but maybe and certain, maybe that's not fair for everyone. And certain, certain people, maybe they, they believe in it in a, in a different way. But um, and, and the, the trend is the, the – the, that's the change. And I wonder, like, when – have you seen any markers? Like, 
When did that start to change to become more of a, a trend, and why do you think that's happened? In terms of amphorae, or just in in um, in in, I mean, there's I mean, amphorae come with 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 skin maceration, with this whole sort of you know range of of techniques that I think people have picked up um, that are willfully different. Mm-hmm. And and there was an experimentation phase, and I think you sit and you now see very broadly that people uh, are interested and they want to. They want to explore it. And I mean, I remember writing about the, 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 the quote unquote trend of skin fermented wine in, I think it was 2009. And I was piecing together like, you know, Pax Maley's, you know, uh, Trousseau Gris in California with Grovner, with um, uh, Elena Pettiglione at La Stopa. And, you know, you would, you know, and, and like uh, Channing Daughters uh, and all of this, you know, stuff that was sort of really fringy and interesting and experimental. And now, you know, it's become, there, there's two for, there, there, there's, there's two prongs of a fork, I guess. One of which is the part in which this is an interesting t- technique these are interesting techniques and they can do interesting things to wine and they're a good resource for a winemaker to have. And the other one is, you know, we're doing them because they're cool and people love wines that are made X way. And when I, when I look at that second part, I, you know, I legitimately have to ask myself is, you know, yeah, I get it. You know, it's all about, you know, the ancient wonders of Georgia and going back to the past and all of this retro, sort of uh, retro glam uh, vision. But, you know, saying we're going to make an amphora wine because it's really cool, like, is that so much wildly different from saying, you know, we're going to ferment in 100% new oak because, like, it's really cool and it's what winemaking is. And, I, I mean, that's an uncomfortable statement because the people who love amphora wines definitely do not like all new oak wines, and I don't like all new oak wines. Same. And I like amphora <laughs> wines a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. But it is you know, in the end, it's a willful choice of a technique as a marketing sale, uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a marketing bullet. And, uh, you know, I, that's not to question that winemakers want to do it for the right reasons. But in the end, when you start making an amphora cuvee, which, you know, it's definitely not a new idea, um, you know, is it, is it because there's something there to express or is it because you know, to the point of your Italian friends, that you can sell it in Copenhagen? Yes. And that blew my mind when I heard that too. They were like, if we have a wine that, you know, it goes really strange and like, we don't think it's, you know, good for the American or the Italian market. And it's just too weird weird for Bushwick, too weird for Bushwick. We'll send it to Copenhagen because they will always eat up all of that. Um, And that, you know, that leads me to, uh, you know, it's something that you also brought up in in that uh, that great article by by Megan that roundtable. Um, you you mentioned how the the faults uh, in the wine sometimes become the things that people look for actually, and they're markers of uh, uh, of you know once they recognize that there's that fault, like oh that's a natural wine that's on trend, I'm going to like that. Um, and I thought that Lou Amador had an interesting or provocative quote in that as well, where he, uh, <laughs> he, Lou? Uh, he, uh, never outspoken. Uh, well, I guess the, the point is, do you, no, do you, are, totally are there, kidding. are there any faults that you're, that you're okay with? How do you feel about faults, uh, in wine? Uh, and I guess the main faults that I mentioned before are, are, are Brett, Britannomyces, uh, VA, and that sort of like bacterial mousiness that you see in, in a lot of these wines that sort of label themselves as natural wines. Um, I'd say my personal uh, affinity would be towards no fault at all, um, uh, and no mousiness. Um, but I can deal, as someone who loves Italian wines, I can deal with a little bit of VA, maybe a little bit of breadiness, but not a high amount or a medium amount even. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I am similarly of the, you know, of the view that, you know, no faults are better. Um, but, uh, you know, th- th- there are faults that do, uh, have a standing tradition, you know, Zabibo without some VA would probably not be typical. Uh, the, the Vinsanto of Santorini, not the Vinsanto of, of Italy, uh, without VA, uh, would probably not be traditional, you know, Chateauneuf without some Brett arguably wouldn't be traditional, although Chateauneuf is a lot better without it, um, for me. Um, you know, those all like Brett, 
you see that there's a way in which it is has been sort of you know permitted and maybe even encouraged in small ways uh, over time in winemaking. VA, same thing. Uh, you know, there's oxidative processes that you know you wouldn't necessarily want in some wines, but you know, but uh, oxidative aging, biological aging. You know, I imagine someone could argue that's a, a fault. To me, you know, the the faults you get are 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 really the bacterial ones in in the end that come in, comes to mouse and mouse is hard because one no one wants to talk about it um two everyone seems to have somehow been given a pass uh on it and it's sort of like well you know we're just letting the wine do its thing and sometimes this is what it does uh and um three not everyone can taste it which makes it really difficult um but to me that's the one that i'm like that that i and i know i get into trouble for this i kind of put it up with up there um with TCA, with mm-hmm. corkiness in wine, and maybe even more so because TCA is something that is introduced by the cork that you've selected and, you know, you are not really in control of it. Mouse, you know, I think when you really start talking to people who've done whatever research there is out there on it, um, it is largely controllable by a winemaker, um, for better or worse, with the with the homeopathic use of sulfur, um, which again, for for some winemakers, is is non-starter as a discussion, and so um, you're going to find it. And it's um, and the the thing the thing that to me is frustrating, like I said, is that you know people don't want to talk about it. They don't. You know, they don't see it as okay to criticize as something when you find in a wine, which I don't, as a critic, uh, I don't understand uh, legitimately. Like, that's a, it's mystifying to me, but I think that is part of the ethos of natural wine in 2018. Um, and and then you get these these theories that I think, you know, tend to to fall apart a little bit. I mean, the one of the dominant ones now is, well, if you just wait, and because a lot of it has to do with early bottling and whether the malolactic is finished and, you know, the extent to which there's lactobacillus in the wine. It's, I mean, again, there's, there's a lot of questions, but there's some sense of what causes it. Uh, and so people are like, well, if you wait for bottling or if you just like, if you wait and leave the wine and let it go away, uh, it's going to get better. And, you know, last night we were out having uh, dinner at a, an Italian restaurant, not yours, um, uh, and ordered a bottle of Freza. And, you know, there was like a little VA, and my wife and I looked at each other, and she's a wine professional, and I know she hates VA. And I was like, Are, you know, can we, can we do this? Is this, you know, like, I mean, like for me it was like, it was within it was within, within tolerance yeah and then somewhere around two thirds of the way through the bottle which is really rare um, I shouldn't say it's really rare it's it's not it's not the way it usually manifests itself about two th- thirds of the way through the bottle like the mouse hit and suddenly I'm like eating my salt and boca and my Fraser which was like a little a little funky to to use the word that I don't want to use like you know had had a little bit of of quirkiness to it suddenly like had that sort of like rancid wet oatmeal mm-hmm. uh, pig slop taste to it. And I was just like, I'm done. And Val's like, I don't get it. I don't, not tasting it. And I'm like, well, this get is, you know, I'm like, this is, how do we, you know, how do you, how do you deal with something like this where to me a wine suddenly with exposure to oxygen becomes undrinkable and flawed. Um, and yet, you know, someone who, I consider an equally good and probably better taster to me is just she's not. I mean, I literally pushed my glass to her. I was like, "You want it, you drink it," because I'm I'm done with this wine. I, you know, I'm with you on the mousiness. It becomes so distracting to me that it's the only thing I can taste. Just as when I've picked up some corkiness in the wine, and I, I, every time I go back, I'm like, it, you know, it's corked, and becomes so distracting that to me that's a a non-starter uh, in the wine. But crazy that people have certain different sensitivities to that. And as best I understand is genetic. And so it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not something that you can necessarily, I mean, it's hard. It's not something you can necessarily rely on human tasting to, to make a, uh, make a decision about. And, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that mouse became an issue for me when I left California and I was suddenly tasting a lot more, uh, mostly French wines. And I realized that one of the, one of the real issues that I was facing is that in California, almost everyone tests, even if they like believe in all the sort of the principles of natural, almost everyone tests their wine much more frequently and for many more things. And there's just this, this culture of sort of checking your microbiology all the way through, which, you know, 
to me is sort of a morally neutral thing. I think there's people who would who would reject it on the on the idea that you're you know you're you're overweening, but um, I have no I have no issues with it whatsoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and in France, that's just you know there are fewer labs. It's you know it costs a lot of money, and frankly, like French winemakers generally don't have a lot of money. And so I think you know I think there's a lot more things that kind of that get through because because there's not a culture of seeing whether your microbiology is on point. And if you, even if you are, you're like checking for, you're checking for VA, you're checking maybe for bread, but probably not even that. Um, you usually now are checking for sulfur levels because there's this kind of weirdly, um, you know, sort of Catholic school approach to checking wines for sulfur before they can, you know, show up at the right wine fairs. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's odd to me because like I said, I, I didn't, it wasn't something that was part of my, my analysis of wine, say five years ago. Um, but I also realized I've tasted and I have no, no empirical evidence for this whatsoever. This is my experience purely, um, I've realized that my sensitivity to it has absolutely exploded and I would have to I would have to put that back on kind of the same thing that allows a lot of people to become sensitive in their tasting, which is um, if you taste a lot of wine with a certain quality, you're going to become more sensitive to that quality. Mm-hmm. And I have now tasted enough wines that have mousiness as an issue that like it it becomes really, really obvious to me. And I, I mean, just, um, just last week I was, you know, getting into an argument with, uh, with, uh, the owner of a wine bar in, in Barcelona about the, the relative level of mousiness in a wine, which was like killing me. And he was like, I guess you could see some mouse in there. And I'm like, no, this is not, you know, this is a thing. It's like, you know, if we, you know, I mean, if we could, if we could, Again, apply a, um, you know, if we actually went and checked this wine out, there mm-hmm. would be mouse and it's, you know, that you can or can't taste it can't be the like the, the, the market quantifier, except that it is like that's that's where I mean, there is these wines are getting sold, you know, all over and there are people who love them. So it seems like such a shame to me. I wonder if you agree that uh, people could do a lot of good hard work in, in the vineyard and then um, just by. And it seems like you're saying just by not using a little bit of sulfur. And, and for our listeners, remember, sulfur is both an antioxidant, which is great. It prevents the wine from oxidizing, but it's also an antibacterial. Um, and so it seems like you're saying just adding a little bit of sulfur to a lot of these wines would actually get rid of that, that bacterial mousiness to it and make them much brighter, fresher, more delicious wines all around. I think I would say that whether a winemaker wants to use sulfur or not is, is her or his decision. Um, but I, from my end, give absolutely no extra credit for not using sulfur. And so from, from my standpoint, uh, if you, if you want to work without sulfur, then figure out a way to do it Mm -hmm. and make it successful. And that's what someone like Pierre Auvernois did. That's what Jules Chauvet was always doing experiments on. Uh, Uli Stein from, from the Mosul was in town not too long ago. And, um, uh, part of a, a sort of informal symposium about sulfur and unsulfured wines. And, and he presented his, his unsulfured wine, which I have to admit, I didn't really like that much, but he had, he, he put it through three years of aging uh, for a Riesling. And I think, you know, and, and a lot of that he actually did derive from, from Auvernois. And some of it was just saying, you know, in order to make a wine without this particular preservative, uh, and that's in the end, a large part of what sulfur is, you know, I have to find a different path. And that different path is essentially to sort of build the wine's tolerance to oxygen and everything else over time. Of course, it's also German Riesling, so it's incredibly high in acid. So you have inherently fewer microbiological problems because the acidity will um, kill off a lot of spoilage yeasts um, and just having a pH that low helps you a lot. Uh, but, you know, so it's, it's I think, um, you know, I, I know my view about sulfur, but it's like it's, if, if, you know, if as a winemaker you've decided my year's worth of work is going to go into the bottle and I just want to, like, let it live, I don't want, that's an intervention that I don't want to to engage in, then that's, you know, 
it's your choice. It's your product. You do your thing. But like, it's definitely not, I, I'm not going to forgive it for being fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you decided that was your, your decision. And I, um, and that I think is probably what, um, what, um, you know, what ends up making me the, the party pooper a little right. bit. Yeah. And it seems like there should be enough sulfur used so that the wine isn't fucked up. And sometimes that's no sulfur, right? Sometimes there are some really delicious cuvées, uh, like LaPierre makes one, Frank Balthazar makes a, I think both of those guys make delicious no sulfur cuvées. And sometimes that's some sulfur. Um, we had a conversation recently, uh, at, at a, a great local place, uh, not, not a wine place, but at, at Roses, a, a bar in, in, uh, Prospect Heights. And I remember saying to you, uh, I, I feel that sulfur should be uh, should be used like a doctor would prescribe medicine, the minimum effective dose. And you told me that's that's not a new that's not a new theory. It is. It is. It I thought, is not I, a thought new I was brilliant, yeah. but it's not. But it, it's not new. Um, uh, and uh, if you could, you tell us yeah, where, I mean, where, so, where that so comes from. That particular phrase, which is minimum effective SO two, is exactly the phrase that Paul Draper at Ridge Vineyards uh, was using about ten years ago. When, like I said, we were having this whole earlier chapter of a natural wine debate, and 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 Paul, who you know is pretty classical winemaker, and like you know learned to make Cabernet by going back and reading nineteenth century texts. Um, you know, he he was a huge proponent of what at that point was being called natural wine. And in his view, Ridge generally was a natural wine and that there were no additives to it. Uh, but one of the things that he believed in was minimal, um, minimum effective SO2. And in his case, what he meant was you never add more than you absolutely have to. You keep it to the lowest possible dose to keep the wine stable and clean. And of course, now that phrase remains if if not into the point of fully no sulfur that why that phrase remains as a uh essentially a benchmark of the most that anyone will do uh and so it yeah so 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 essentially this idea of kind of finding your you know your weakest possible homeopathic dose and it's interesting because again like french winemakers they always talk about um you know homeopathic you know sort of i i only add as much sulfur as kind of as you know absolute bare minimum necessary um that 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 idea has essentially remained all through it's just that the context of it has completely flipped And on that note, I think it's time that we should take a quick break. We'll be back more with John Bonet right after this. This episode is presented by The Green Grape, a family of three businesses on Fulton Street committed to supporting small-scale farms, celebrating seasonality, and delighting their customers. Order local pasture-raised meats and cheeses to pair with their selection of fine wines and spirits, and they'll deliver to your door at no extra charge. From great local gifts to providing all you need for a delicious meal, The Green Grape offers truly special and hard-to-find products created by New York's community of local makers. Support independent grocers and visit their website to learn more, greengrape.com. That's G-R-E-E-N-E, grape.com. This episode is also presented by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, a vibrant and supportive community of professional women who work in all areas of food, beverage, and hospitality, and come together to network, learn, and share their passion. Membership is only open once a year, every spring, so now is the time to join. The deadline is Wednesday, May 23rd. Visit nywca.org for more details. All right, we are back with John Bonnet here in the studio. Uh, John, I want to ask you about, and I find that at Fausto, I have more and more guests, especially 
let's say, of the millennial generation, uh, which I, th- I think I might fit into it. I might be like the last year, uh, the <laughs> oldest. I might be the oldest millennial. Um, but uh, the, those younger than us uh, asking for specifically for natural wine. Um, and, you know, I, <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if you have any ideas as to why this generation is so excited uh, about these wines. Um, what, what has made it sort of trendy and appealing to them? I, I have thought about it a fair amount, and I used to be a bit more puzzled than maybe I am now. And, and some of it is like, you know, wine always needs a trend. You know, there was a Parker trend for a while, and then there was, you know, there was sort of the, like, light reds and Amphorae and, you know, New California, all these, all the waves to ride. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think some of it is that people need a trend right now. Um, it's everything, everyone likes natural, everyone likes, you know, sort of green juice and all this stuff. Magazine editors love that there's this kind of, you know, hipster gonzo wine that um, is, uh, you know, attracts a, a young readership. Uh, and it's just sort of having a fashion moment. I like couldn't quite figure out why aside from, you know, aside from the, you know, the, the buzz of, you know, watching, uh, I think we were talking about this at some point, you know, the watch buzz of watching, uh, you know, action Bronson on vice and give me some, you know, uh, give me he, some fucking Susukaru. He's like, I know, love the Susukaru, uh, bro. You, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, my, and, I love natural wine. Yeah, That's and my so, shit. You yeah. know, it's like, how, how is it not as a putative quote unquote yeah. non-natural wine do you compare with, you know, it's, you have that, you have Eric Wareheim out giving interviews to GQ about, you know, about the infinite wisdom of natural wine and all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, so some of it is, some of it is trend, but, but figuring out the root of the trend is, is harder. And for me, it finally clicked a few months ago. Uh, we were in Paris uh, at uh, a natural wine bar that I actually really like a lot. And I was there with, um, with my wife, with a few friends from California, including one who's a, a really pretty talented, well-known uh, winemaker in California. And uh, he actually started talking to uh, this young couple uh, at the bar, and they're, they're, both, they're both American, they're both journalists working in Europe, uh, and, you know, kind of probably, I don't know, mid, mid, to late thir- uh, mid to late 20s. And he's like, so what? You know, and, and, and he, he, he makes what could be called natural wine, but I don't, he, he would ever describe it as that way. He definitely is using minimum effective SO2, uh, and, you know, indigenous yeasts, all these, all the right things, but the wines are still very traditional. Uh, and, uh, I think, you know, he likes to, he likes to poke the bear somewhat. And so he was like, so what, like, what, what, what brought you here? Why are you like, why are you at this bar? Why, you know, they're like, well, we love natural wine. He's like, well, what do you, what do you love about it? And we're sort of like, goading them a little bit. And, and it was interesting. Um, and their answer kind of cemented everything for me. And um, one of them said, you know, what we love is that we don't need to know anything in order to love these wines. And I think they may, they meant it not obviously knowing that, you know, they were talking to, you know, the, uh, you know, the great and powerful Oz over to my left. Um, uh, that, uh, that, they loved that the wines came without context. You didn't have to go through sort of the WSET and the sommelier courses and all of this nerdy learning. Uh, you didn't have to memorize appellations. You didn't have to understand the backstory and understand why, you know, one Bordeaux is better than another, you know, one Burgundy is better than another. They, they came at a completely, not even a level playing field, but they came with a blank slate. They came with at, at day zero, essentially. And, and that was interesting to me. I, you know, as someone who has spent a long time learning a lot about wine, as have you, um, that hurts me in various ways. But I'm like, I get it. You know, I, I had sort of thought, well, they just don't want their parents' wines. And I think that's part of it is, is that these are really wines that come without, without the baggage of the past. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really that you like, it is this totally totally neutral playing field where there's really no criticism. Nobody has a hierarchy of better or worse. Um, you don't really talk about flaws because, you know, the wines, the wines are what they want to be. And, uh, and you can just kind of dive in and like them and, you know, be a fanboy or fangirl with, without, without having to become a snob or what, what I guess some people would see as being a snob. That's a good point. It, the natural wine term doesn't really allow for much criticism 
other than saying the opposite. So something that, that's not a natural wine is an unnatural, and no one wants to have something that's unnatural. That's not, you know, so that sort of puts them all, they're all natural. They're all in the same field. So it's probably very, very hard to, to criticize that. Yeah, and, and, and I was having, um, I was having a, a discussion at some point with Jean-Pierre Robineau. I think it's Jean-Pierre. French first names kill me, but um, uh, and I'm just having a I'm clearly having a senior moment. But, a Lo- Loire uh, Valley producer, but, but yeah, Loire. Yeah. I mean, at Langevin, and but but more probably more importantly, he oh, he owned one of the first natural wine bars in Paris uh, before they were called natural wine bars, uh, and he also helped found uh, uh, Rouge Le Blanc, which was sort of France's first really independent wine magazine, and. And he's a super interesting guy. He does large format photography in addition to all of his totally unsulfured wines. And, you know, the wines are very unsulfured. And, and at his domain, they actually taste really interesting um, before they've traveled anywhere. Some better, some worse. But, like, you know, he's – it may or may not be his art project, but, like, he's, he's committed. He has his vision. Um, but more importantly, like, he understands art. He had been a critic. And I was like, so, you know – what what is the context for for presenting criticism of these wines? And he's like, well, I think about it the way that you would you would you would criticize an artist, which is you have to understand their their of you have to understand the their work and their body of work and you know and their aesthetic vision, and then you can you can make some some decisions and you can make some judgments as to whether they're accomplishing their goals or not. And I actually think that is sort of the perfect definition of wine criticism for wine natural or not. Um, but there does, that does open the window to the idea that there is criticism and that you can say, you know, this is, this is a wine of quality and this is a wine of less quality and this is a wine with some problems and this person is really talented. Uh, and that conversation to me is where all of this ultimately has to move. And I think that is very uncomfortable to the natural wine lover who is coming at it thinking I need to, you know, I, I don't need to know anything. I can just love all these wines. And, uh, you know, this is, this, I, I think legitimately is, is the cultural tangle we're going to have for a little while. And that's mm-hmm. sort of what I was getting at with, uh, the, 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 the quote in, in Megan's piece was, you know, there's, I mean, any legitimate, uh, form of expression, um, has a period of growth and then it has a period of kind of painful evolution and, and, entanglement in which the good, the good rises and endures and the crap sort of, you know, gets flushed away. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do feel like we're, we're coming upon that where, you know, this thing of like, well, the only thing you need to get into, you know, to get into, to my wine fair is, is a sulfur test, uh, and a bunch of money. I mean, that's going to have to evolve because people, are going to start at some point expecting more curation. And that's, that's what, you know, natural wine, not natural wine, whatever, that's what any good wine professional is doing if they're selling in a store, if they're selling in a restaurant, if they're working as a wine critic, um, you know, if they're writing a newsletter, whatever it is. Like, there is an act of curation and um, this thing of like, well, you can't criticize the wine because the wine's been made according to the, you know, according to virtuous principles. Well, come on. I mean, you know, that, that is, that is, that is a hall pass that, you know, that only works for so long. Yes. And I have to admit, I agree with everything you said, uh, but my favorite wines tend to be the ones that are grown organically or biodynamically that, uh, are fermented with their own ambient yeast that aren't really sulfured, uh, that aren't uh, filtered, uh, that have minimal sulfur, um, but they still have to present themselves as being a, a a pretty beautiful thing with minimal or no faults. That that's you know that, that's made by a talented winemaker. And and I think all of those things are good, and I think all of these things are are virtues in wine, and 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 frankly, I think all of them get back closer to what the wine can possibly express itself as, whether, you know, don't want to get into a terroir discussion, but whether that's its terroir, whether that's its its variety, I think that those are all tools to get closer, both to quality, but also to kind of a clear expression. Uh, but yeah, they, they still have to succeed. And, 
you know, one, I mean, I've written it, um, and I, and actually in the context of talking about natural wine and wine lists, one of the things that I think has been really successful when I've experienced the wine list at Fausto is that you have lots of stuff on there that you would absolutely find in like super fringy bars of Paris, you know, like, you know, you've got, you've got the, um, uh, not Mark Pino, um, the, um, that old plenty. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The, um, the, the crazy muscadets um, that are definitely no sulfur um, and all sorts of stuff. Like someone who is deep, deep in natural wine could like walk in and be super happy. Um, but someone who's, you know, kind of a classicist and just wants to like drink their, drink their, ca- their Cabernet, wants to like, you know, drink their Suave, like they can go in and I forget if Pra's still on, but like they can go in and get their like, their, you know, their classic wines. And like, to me, I, I think you see there's a fair number of wine lists out, uh, out in the country. I mean, Giant in Chicago is another one. There's a whole bunch in LA. You see like at, at Major Domo um, that, you know, that take the best from whatever regions, whatever philosophies, however you want to subdivide the wine world, uh, and offer them. And, and that's, to me, that's, that's as it should be, you know, if there's great natural wines, you know, which, you know, with La Pierre, that's awesome. If you want, you know, Pierre Coton or, um, you know, Jan Bertrand, whoever sort of the, the new, the new garden Beaujolais is, that's awesome. Um, and you know, if you want to, you know, serve crazy stuff from the Roussillon and whatever, like, you know, if, if it's good, if it works with the cuisine, if it's been thoughtfully curated to go back to that word, um, that's great, but it is, it is relatively dogma free. And I think, like I said, this is, this is this coming debate, which is how far can dogma take you? Yeah. And to me, a restaurant wine list, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to only get people who come into the restaurant who just like natural wine or just like, aged Barolo, though if we only had people who like aged Barolo, we'd be doing very well. I think my, my uh, Alino yeah. has shown that that is a very good business model. It's a good business model. Um, uh, it, so I, I think that the wine list should have a level of hospitality to it as well. And um, and I think that there are very well-made wines in, you know, in many different styles. Uh, and those sort of, you know, uh, wines that you might find in a fringier wine bar I think those would probably be the ones that I would gravitate to if I were in those fringier wine because they're they're not the, you know, lasagna champagne, right? Like that is I think the cham- a champagne you'd find in a lot of Paris wine. Every bars. restaurant in the eleventh, yeah, yeah. But it's be- I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, uh, it's not funky. It's you know it's well made. Um, and and there's you know there's there's plenty of other things like that as well. But it's it's got to be something that uh, no matter what kind of drinker you are you're going to find something that you, you know, that you like, but it's, it, I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't also like curating it and finding the best in those, in those various styles. I also wonder if, uh, if some of what is perceived as the hostility toward natural wine, this, you know, it's funky, it's cloudy, it's cidery. I mean, all this stuff, like, you know, people, people sort of tag the wine spectator and I guess maybe it's an easy target. Um, cause it's like, that is sort of the quintessence of not liking those things because mm-hmm. atypicity is bad, you know, when you're, when you're in that system of tasting. Um, but you know, if you took that away and people were like, yeah, you know, not my thing, think it's kind of weird, but you know, you know, you do you. Um, I wonder if, if, if it suddenly lost some of that radical chic, mm-hmm. if people would be as into it. I, I wonder that. Yeah. I think there's something that it, there's something to that, that people want to feel like they're doing something, uh, that isn't as standard. Um, but it's amazing to me. And I don't know if this has been just a year and a half of me being out of, of the business or a change from Manhattan to Brooklyn, but you know, in Manhattan, I was really excited, uh, you know, about featuring some uh, a little bit slightly funkier wines or or orange wines, and it was they were somewhat of a hard sell. You know, we I mean, we had Damian by the glass in two thousand seven <laughs> and uh, in two thousand eight, and there's going to be uh, all these people who are like what, that 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 happened then. Like, <laughs> yeah, who's had- Damian? <laughs> And we had that by the glass for years. I always had a, you know, a, 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 a white wine served at cellar temperature that had some skin maceration. I thought that was a fun thing to do. Uh, and there weren't as many customers. But now in Brooklyn in 2018, I find that um, people are asking for even funkier wines or even, you know, weirder wines than, you know, than we have sometimes. Uh, 
it's it's been a change. Well, and 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 it's worth remembering that Wall Street money now spends itself out in Williamsburg, mm-hmm. and so I think there's also, I mean, you see a progression, for instance, of, and I just use that as kind of an example of relative conservatism. You know, this was where California called cabs were. This is where Bordeaux was. Now, you know, more recently it was like, you know, like sort of Premier Cru Burgundy was like hit the sweet spot for an expense account dinner, uh, and now it's evolved. And I think, you know, I think there is, um, I think that, that there is a, a mainstream quote unquote, a, a more sort of, you know, middling, middling aesthetic interest, uh, in these wines. And so, yeah, when you move, you know, farther out, uh, toward the edge, absolutely. And I think it's, there's no question now versus two years ago for me, uh, that, there is an expectation that someone is working with these wines in some way if they want to be in sort of that that inner circle of, of cool places. All right. I agree with you on that. And uh, I, in your new book, are you going to be covering this topic at all? I will. All right. Is that all you can say about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mostly because I haven't even come close to, to thinking about an outline. Um, well, I'm eagerly waiting. I know that, that in that case, it's probably a couple of years out, right? You've given me much to think about. Yes, that's great. All right. Um, I, I really wanted to thank you so much for, for being on the show and congratulate you also really on your, your current new book, uh-huh. The New Wine Rules, which I'm holding here. It is, uh, is a, a great resource for you know, you. how to drink wine and how to love it. So congratulations. It's also very beautiful. Uh, that is totally 10-speed uh, press, so uh, props to them. And um, thanks so much for having me on again. It's, it's always a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Uh, and it was really great talking to you. Uh, and to the listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion on natural wine. I hope you're as excited as I am that In the Drink is back. I'm looking forward to more episodes on wine and the people who drink it. I also want to thank our engineer, David Tadishore, and our team. Uh, and new to our team is producer Jessamine Molly. You can also find her working at the Slate podcast, Working. Uh, I hope to see you at Fausto soon. And until next time, thanks so much for listening to In the Drink. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.